Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, April 10th, on this Good Friday, we're studying Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 through 66. Jesus' crucifixion went quickly, and now he must be buried. Yet even with Jesus in the tomb, his enemies still plot against him and against his disciples. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. Pastor Heidi serves as pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He's also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken. Pastor Heidi, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Glad to be back. Always a joy. As we get started this morning, Pastor Heidi, give us some context. We're at the end of Matthew chapter 27. What's been happening? What do we need to know going into today's text? Well, we are looking at the very end of the Passion narrative, uh, the end of chapter 27. So Jesus has died on the cross, and we've seen all of the things that have been going on with that. And right now we're in the transitional period between uh, when Jesus is, I mean, between the, the, the cross and the, the empty tomb on Easter Sunday, of course. What we see right now is the burial of Jesus Christ and all of the things that are going on with that, as well as some of the kind of the, the previews of what's going to happen in chapter 28 as well. So we're coming to the, the very end of the book and kind of getting to the, the main heart of the Gospel of Matthew. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, it, it... In many ways, this section that we've got today almost feels like a, a sigh of relief in the sense that we the, the cross was such a big event and everything was leading up to the cross. And now it's happened. Jesus has died. You've had these spectacular signs. And then today's text, I, I don't know, almost seems like, well, let's just move past that and get to the resurrection. But, but it is important. We're, we're going to see some important things in this text. So we, we can't just sort of jump over it from Jesus' death to his, his resurrection. These things that happen in the middle are, are important, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. Because if we don't have Christ's burial, um, you know, you could be drawing into question the reality of what's been going on. And the fact that he uh, is being sealed into the tomb is also a testament to what's about to happen. So these are steps that we have to take in, in according to the scriptures, before Christ can rise from from the grave on the fall, you know, on on Easter Sunday, no, this is absolutely stuff we need to focus on as well. Right, right. I, I think about the, the Apostles' Creed. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He right. descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. We in in our preaching, I think, we focus a lot on he was crucified and he was died, and on the third day he rose again. The matter of Christ's descent into hell, which I, I don't think we'll talk about today because it's not specifically mentioned in Matthew, although it probably occurs in the time period that we're going to look at today. That that tends to catch our eye because it's just different. It's one of those those phrases in the creed that usually you spend a little bit of time on in adult confirmation class because you've got some folks that are wondering, what what's that doing in the creed? But in the middle of all that is Christ's burial. And it, it does sometimes get skipped over, but it's important. And so today's text will invite an opportunity to reflect on his burial, why it's important, what it means for us, what, what happened, and all of that. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and read the text for today. This is Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that impostor said, while he was still alive, 
After three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. That is our text for today, Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 through 66. Pastor Heidi, the text starts for us today, when it was evening. So the text starts on Good Friday itself. Good Friday's not yet finished. Why is this important that Jesus' burial happens on Good Friday? Mostly because the the law of God, the law of Moses, required that a hanged man, someone who was hanged on a tree, be buried on the same day, lest he become a curse on the land. Um, this, of course, comes from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. And it's also a point that Paul picks up on very importantly in Galatians chapter 3, when he says that Christ became a curse for us on the cross. So the fact that he needs to be taken down immediately is in keeping with the law of God and just the realities of, of burial in those days. But I don't think we want to overlook the fact that, you know, Paul makes a big point out of this point right here, right? Right. So the fact that he's buried on Good Friday is a connection to Deuteronomy 21 and Galatians chapter 3 of the significance of Christ being crucified, that he was nailed to a tree. He was hanged from a tree, to use that language from Deuteronomy. And in so doing, he became the curse for us in order to redeem us from the curse. I I think, too, in addition to that, just the the timing of everything, if you think back Mm -hmm. to what Jesus has spoken about, he's talked about being in the tomb for three days. And so his burial on Good Friday is is also important that the word of God would be fulfilled in that sense as well. Right. Yeah, no, because if we're going to count from Friday evening, which of course would be the first day, to the beginning of, of uh, Friday evening to the following Saturday evening in, in the Jewish reckoning, you know, evening to evening, which would be the second day, and then, of course, in the, the wee hours of of the morning on Sunday when Jesus rises from the dead. So you have three days, according to the Jewish reckoning, of Christ being in the tombs. So, yes, he absolutely has to be buried now, in order, like as you put it, to, to fulfill the scriptures, because all of these things are happening just as he said that they would. And in fact, the, that God gave this law in Deuteronomy chapter 21 regarding a man hanged on a tree being buried on the same day is in fact looking forward to this. You know, as, as Paul says, you know, does, does he write these things about ox just for the sake of oxen? No, he writes these things for us. So this was in fact looking forward to this exact moment when Jesus would be buried on Good Friday in accordance with the scriptures, in accordance with prophecy. Talk, talk a bit about a bit more about as well the the reckoning of time. Sometimes in mm-hmm. our modern world, when we think of you know twenty four hours, thirty six mm-hmm. hours, we would try to count. You know, Jesus died three p.m. on Good Friday. He rose sometime on on the third, what's called the third day on Sunday morning. We would count the hours, and maybe we'd only get thirty six hours. And and some might mm-hmm. question, well, that's not three days, Jesus. How how is it that it actually is three days? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all. Uh, we have to remember that for the Jews and, and in, in the Bible in this time, they they begin their day at sundown, okay? So when the sun sets, you have the beginning of the following day. So technically, after the sun has set on Good Friday, for them, it's the beginning of Saturday. Um, the next thing to remember with the reckoning of time is, is it, kind of in the same way that we do sometimes, you know, when we talk about what we did yesterday, if I say, like, I went to the store yesterday, Does that mean that I went to the store all day yesterday? No, it just means that yesterday was, you know, when I, when I started my trip, when I went down and when I went to do this. So thinking in terms of a part of a day and using that in to refer to the whole day is something that we do also in our own language. It's just, it's a very human way of thinking. Um, So Christ dies on Good Friday during the day. He is in the tomb before the sun sets. And then he, and then he's in the grave, sun, you know, from sundown to sundown Saturday. And then again, we don't know exactly when, but he rises on on Sunday morning. So 
yes, it is three days if if we're not thinking in our very literalistic hour by hour kind of thinking. Absolutely. So on Good Friday, when it's evening, the main actor in this narrative then is a man by the name of Joseph. Let's let's talk a little bit about Joseph. What do we what do we know about him from the text from elsewhere? Let, let's talk about Joseph here. Sure. Well, to be fair, we don't know a whole lot about Joseph because all we know about him is what the Gospels tell us about him, and he only appears in all four of the Gospels at this point. So we just kind of have to go by what they say. Um, but he's said to be a man from Arimathea, which in Luke 23, verse 51, is said to be a city in Judea. Um, is probably was a city somewhere to the, the north, uh, kind of near Jerusalem, but not you know real near. Some people have identified it with ancient Ramah, where Samuel was born. Um, but all of this is just kind of a way of saying that he's an important man who lives nearish to Jerusalem, and he's also a believer in Jesus Christ. This is also especially noteworthy because Mark and Luke, in particular, describe him as a member of the Sanhedrin. He's actually one of the leaders of the Jews, but he had not consented to their decision. So it wasn't a, a unanimous verdict against him when they came and condemned him to death. But for whatever reason, either either because Joseph wasn't there or because maybe he didn't speak up enough or he was overruled, um, his voice of reason didn't didn't come through. And so he did. So what he has come to do then is to show respect to the body of Jesus and to uh, take care of it now that Jesus has died. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about that, but do you want to react to that first? Well, sure. So so we know that Joseph, like you said, he's from Arimathea. Matthew gives us that mm -hmm. along with other Gospels. We're told that he's a member of the Sanhedrin. John John's Gospel also connects him in the burial with Nicodemus, also a member right. of the Sanhedrin. So so just to, and, that, and that's a, a good way of pointing out that not every single Pharisee chief priest elder was entirely against Jesus. They often get grouped together, but you do have these individuals, Joseph and Nicodemus being noteworthy among them, who do believe in Jesus. They are disciples of Jesus, even in the midst of, of his enemies. The other other thing that I think is important to point out about Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, what he gives us about Joseph, is that Matthew makes the point that Joseph is a disciple who is a rich man. He's, he's a right. rich man. And, and so go back to, to Matthew chapter 19 and the conversation with the rich man there and, and the aftermath, the disciples ask Jesus, well, who can be saved if it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of, of heaven? And Jesus says, with man, it's impossible. With God, it is possible. So here's an example of a rich man who is saved, which I think is at least important to point out, if nothing else. Sure. Oh, yeah. I mean... This is, of course, that Jesus is, you know, saying too, where your heart is there, your treasure will be also. Uh, you have other examples of this, like uh, Barnabas later in Acts, who's rich and, and very wealthy. Um, so it's not the it's not wealth per se that is the problem. It's where your focus is, where your heart is, where your trust is that makes it the problem. And of course, that's very easy to do when you are wealthy. And that's why Jesus's warnings come out. Um, to put your trust in material things. But Joseph, uh, Joseph here gives us a very good example of how one can be rich and still serve the Lord, even in this very uh, loving, very caring kind of way. Because he has come to do a very, well, I mean, a very nice thing for Jesus. And that is to bury, to bury his body in a very respectful, in a very um, majestic kind of way, in a, in a very nice new tomb. Right. Right. So, so you're talking about this is a respectful action on Joseph's part. It's a kind mm -hmm. thing for him to do, which in, in today's context is probably something we want to talk a little bit more about, because at, at the time of death today, often these things are removed at least one step from the individual family. It's not sure. always the individual family these days who is preparing the body for burial and and it's often that we're removed from those things. And, and maybe today we don't appreciate what a significant action this would have been that Joseph takes and the kindness of it, the, the respectfulness of it. So, so help us to understand what, what's the background here of these burial practices that makes this such a significant, respectful, kind action on Joseph's part. 
Well, there's there's a couple of things at work here, um, and I'm going to start with the 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 wealth end of it first. Um, the first thing about it is is Jesus is being buried in a new tomb. Now, this is an extremely wealthy kind of burial. Um, this is not the kind of burial that most people would have had in those days. Um, to have your own basically mausoleum carved out into a rock is the mark of an extremely wealthy, rich man. Um, you have, for example, in Isaiah 22, verses 15 and forward, where God is criticizing the acts of a man named Shebna, uh, who is basically trying to make himself become so important. One of the things that he's criticized for is cutting a tomb for himself um, as a way of kind of showing off his wealth, as a way of kind of, you know, showing how important he is. So this is an extremely wealthy burial. And Joseph is providing that burial for him. Probably because, and this is kind of related to it, if he had not been buried this way, he probably would have been thrown among the, the, the other bodies in a common grave, especially because he has died the death of a criminal. Okay, So what Joseph is doing here is basically showing respect to Jesus because he doesn't want to see his body kind of I'm desecrated in that way, uh, being thrown among the other criminals, because that's where it would have ended up, especially because the Romans were in charge. But he gives him his own tomb, his own very wealthy, rich tomb, as a way of showing that kind of respect. And the other thing that I want to point out with this, too, when it comes to what Joseph is doing, is that he is actually, in a sense, risking his own defilement, because the law said that anyone who handles a dead body makes you unclean, makes you ritually unclean. You know, this is Numbers 19, verse 11. Of course, it did make an exception for Passover. You know, you could still partake of Passover. But this man, being a member of the Sanhedrin, probably being a Pharisee, I say probably because we're not told specifically, but he is basically showing this respect to Jesus and risking this kind of an uncleanness for a man that the rest of his compatriots hate. So I think that he is showing a tremendous love for Jesus in what he is doing and a tremendous respect for Jesus in what he is doing because he's doing all, you know, giving him such a wealthy, rich burial, even at, even at something of a cost to himself. You want to react and to that? Well, you're right. And, and so the, the cost to himself, not only the fact that this is his own tomb, it's a wealthy burial, the fact that he, he's risking ceremonial uncleanness by going near a dead body, but also, I mean, I think, and you probably brought this out at least a little bit, that he's risking rejection by the rest of the Sanhedrin, who sure. will likely find out what he's done. I mean, think of, it uh, wasn't that long ago where we had John chapter 9 in the three-year lectionary as the gospel reading during the, was it the fourth Sunday in Lent, and that man who was born blind and was healed when he confessed Christ, he was thrown out of the Sanhedrin. And, and John tells us that, that others were being treated the same way, or not the Sanhedrin, out of the synagogue, excuse me, um, but others were being treated the same way because they believed in Jesus. So here Joseph risks not only his, his wealth, he risks his ceremonial cleanness, but he risks his, his power and his position as well, all to do this. So that, sure. I mean, that, that's from Joseph's side, right? Mm -hmm. why, why is it important that Jesus receives this rich man's burial? Well, this is a, again, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Because this is the exact prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 9, which says that he will that the, 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 um, he would die the death of a criminal among the wicked, but he would be buried among the rich in his burial. So, I mean, the, the suffering servant, in this sense, to fulfill the scriptures, to fulfill the word of Isaiah, um, we are seeing that fulfillment right here in the cross and in a rich man's tomb. So, yes, these things are happening just as God has said that they would happen. The fact that this is a, a rich man's burial, it, it's a rather unexpected thing to see that one crucified, a criminal, the worst of the worst from everyone passing by, for him, of all people, to receive a rich man's burial would have shocked people. And, mm -hmm. and yet I think it goes to, it's one way perhaps that Matthew preaches to us the importance of Christ's death, 
on on this and we've talked about this in previous episodes that from from an earthly perspective I mean this this looks like an absolutely horrible action people are mocking Jesus they're making fun of him they're they're treating him with utter cruelty the the things that they say they don't believe and yet the things that they say are true the the sign over Jesus this is Jesus the king of the Jews Pilate meant it as a, a jab at the Jews the Jews didn't like it but it was true Jesus really is the king of the Jews when he reigns on the cross. You've got this scene of his coronation where the, the crown of thorns is put on his head. They, those soldiers think they're mocking Jesus, but it's true. Jesus really reigns as a king. And, and the fact that when it's all said and done, what kind of burial does this criminal get? Well, he gets the burial of a rich man. Al- already, already highlighting again for us the importance of, of what Jesus has done, that truly here are here are true riches. And I think that something else to kind of build on that is a few other um, scriptures that are being fulfilled in this moment when Christ is being buried in a new rich man's tomb. Uh, first of all, that it's a new tomb. It means shows that this is, you know, no one's been in it here before. It's not corrupted. It's not been a, it, it has not undergone the normal corruption of an old tomb or, you know, where people have been buried in over and over and over again. Just as we know, as we know from Psalm 16, you know that you will not let your holy one see corruption. Um, you also the fact that it is new. I mean, I suppose you could say is something new is happening here. But also because no other saint, no one else has been in this before. There's no other reason why this is happening than you know God raising him from the dead. You know, you do have the the very interesting account all the way back in Second uh, Kings chapter 13 with the bones of Elisha being the reason why a man comes back to life. Um, that's not happening here. There's no bones here. There's nothing else in the way. There's no other miracle in place that could kind of explain this away, but the fact that Jesus has, in fact, risen from the dead. And I also think that it's also interesting that this shows his kingship, too, because the kings of Israel, or the kings of Judah, rather, the southern kingdom, for you know centuries, when they were good kings and they were buried, they were buried near Jerusalem, just as Jesus is right now. And so Jesus, in a sense, is showing his kingship in being buried like a king of Israel. But of course, he's going to be greater than the kings of Israel because he will not stay in the tomb. David died and you know, he saw corruption, but Jesus will not because he will not let his Holy One see corruption, but he will rise on the third day. Anyway, I think those are just interesting to point out. So, Right. Well, that's how, that's how Peter preaches it in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. He even compares Jesus and, and David and makes this very point that, look, there's, there's David's tomb over there. We can go visit it if you want. But, but Jesus isn't in his. And, and I, like, I like the point you brought out about that 2 Kings 13 passage, that there weren't someone else's bones in this tomb that will make Jesus alive on, on the third day. No, this is, is his own doing. The Father raises Jesus from the dead. It also means, too, that, that should the tomb show up empty, there's only one option as to who it was that was raised. There wouldn't be a question as to which bones came out. This is definitely going to be Jesus on the third day who has, who has left his, his tomb. A, another scripture I think that we're seeing fulfilled here, and this, this just as you were talking and we were thinking about the riches, is earlier in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus has, has already talked about the richness of his burial when he was anointed by the, the woman in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Remember the the disciples were upset about this. They were indignant at what Jesus at what had been done for Jesus. They called it a waste, but Jesus called it a beautiful thing because she's done this to prepare his body for burial. So here again, this inclusion of of Jesus with the rich in his death, he's he's fulfilling all of these even things that he's already spoken here in in the Gospel of Matthew. Before we've got about two minutes here on this side of the break, and I do want to talk about the women, but I think we'll save them for the other side. Just just thinking about the burial of Jesus, because we said it's it's one of those things that sometimes gets skipped over in, in our preaching. Give us some theological significance to the fact that Jesus is buried. Why why is this important for us theologically? Well, I mean, it's an important thing as we've been emphasizing because, for one thing, that. This is happening in accordance with the scriptures. You know, just as the sun, just as Jonah was in the heart of the 
the, the whale for three days. So Jesus will be in the heart of the earth for three days. But it's also important because this emphasizes the reality of Jesus's death. Okay, this is not, I mean, yes, we talk about him dying on the cross. We talk him about that being real, you know, that really happening. And that's true. But the fact that he is now dead and buried in accordance with the scriptures really emphasizes the fact that he is, in fact, dead. The Son of Man has died. This is not a fake death. This is not him swooning. This is not him, you know, just kind of barely pulling through. Jesus is, in fact, dead. And we need him to be dead at this point and so that he would rise and so that we would then have life in him. If Jesus has not really truly died, he has not really truly risen either, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFU. We're looking at the end of Matthew chapter 27, Jesus' burial. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Good Friday, April 10th. We're looking at Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 through 66, with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi of St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. Pastor Heidi, prior to the break, we were talking about Jesus' burial, and, and we left off with a bit of theological significance. The only other thing that comes to my mind when it comes to the, the theology of Jesus' burial is Paul makes mention of it in Romans chapter 6 when he talks about what baptism is for us, that we were crucified with Christ, we were buried with Christ, and we were raised with Christ. So it, it's an essential part of, of all that Jesus does for our salvation, so much so that in baptism we're connected to that burial of Jesus. So we're, we're seeing the historical reality of it here in Matthew chapter 27. And, and the one detail that we've, we've not really looked at is that there's this stone that goes in front of the tomb, which will become important in the, the latter part of our text as well. But just tell us about sort of the mechanics of this burial. Sure. Well, something that is mentioned in the other Gospels that isn't really mentioned much here. We just have the brief reference, of course, to the linen shroud. Uh, again, the, the wealth. So in other words, uh, he takes a very expensive piece of cloth, and we're told with, in, like in John with Nicodemus, that he's wrapped in um, myrrh and aloes as kind of a way of, of preparing his body, the spices which surround his body. Um, and that's, and of course, remember, this is long before the days of modern burial practices. So this is also kind of a, we got to get it going right now kind of a thing. Because if you remember from uh, John chapter 11, people complain that Lazarus has been dead four days. And of course, what's going to happen after he's been dead for four days. So this is kind of a way of, of covering over, you know, the, the natural odors of, of decomposition. Of course, that's not going to happen with Jesus, but it's part of the burial practices. And so once they wrap him up in this way, in this expensive cloth with this, you know, great weight of expensive of spices. They then lay him in this room, which would have been a carved out room with a kind of bench in it. So if you can imagine just a small closet, if you will, and then a kind of carved out bench into it, the body would have been laid on that bench. And then a trench was dug in front of the, the tomb, which had, you know, the opening of the door, which then had a gigantic stone, which was, you know, gigantic round stone, like a giant plate, which was then rolled in that trench to cover the, the, the door of the tomb. That was done for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, to kind of, you know, contain the body to just, you know, to finally put a burial to it, but also, of course, to prevent further desecration because, you know, it wasn't unheard of, especially with a rich man's tomb for it to be robbed. Uh, if you put a giant stone in front of it, well, then th no one's going to get in, or at least they're going to have to really work at it if they want to do it. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of the, the mechanics of what we're seeing here. 
Joseph taking this time, giving him a very rich burial with all of this linen and and expensive spices and putting this giant stone over the front of it and then going away. The tomb is sealed. The Son of Man Man is in the heart of the earth. All things have been fulfilled. Now, before Matthew moves on to the next scene, what happens on Saturday, he, he mentions again, we've heard him mention women previously, right before our text. He mentions them again here in verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Why is this an important mention right here in the middle of this scene? I think in... I think it's a way of Matthew looking forward to what's going to happen because these women have seen the death of Christ. As we heard in Matthew 27, 56, they're now witnessing his burial and they will be the first ones to see him rise. So I think this is Matthew's way of kind of putting a, a golden thread throughout the, the passion that we are looking forward to the resurrection. And this is not something that just kind of, is you know happening willy-nilly you know by accident or anything like that this is a foretaste of what is to come and the women in a sense as the first witnesses of the resurrection are testifying to that by their presence here at the tomb mm-hmm. right right although i don't think that is to say that these women expected Jesus to rise on the third no. day. When when we no. get to that text, they're going to be surprised, right? Because they, <laughs> right, they went right, to right. the tomb. Yeah, they went to the tomb to to anoint his body further, to give him a, a more proper burial. And so they, they weren't necessarily expecting him to rise. But I think you're exactly right that this is a, a foreshadow, a looking forward to the resurrection and establishing these women as reliable witnesses to the resurrection. One Absolutely. one of the, the arguments that could have been made when, when the tomb is empty, is that, well, they weren't at, at the right one. And so Matthew here dispels that ahead of time. No, they, they knew exactly which tomb Jesus was buried in. They went to that tomb on Sunday, and that's the tomb that was empty. And so, yeah, I think, I think to see this as a, a looking forward to the resurrection, that's, that's the presence of the women here at the end of 27, and then again in, in 28, as we'll see on Monday. So, Pastor Heidi, then the the scene shifts. Friday Friday comes to a close in verse sixty one, and then verse sixty two. It's the next day, so it's it's Saturday, and and here Jesus is dead. He's in the tomb, and and you would think, or at least I would think, that that the chief priests and Pharisees would be at home, put their feet up, totally satisfied. The deed is done. Our enemy is gone. We're good, but. But apparently they're they're still worried. What take us into this this scene beginning in verse sixty two? Yeah. So if we had all of the events on Good Friday now coming to a close, we are now actually on the Sabbath, and I don't think we can overlook that. This is the day of the Passover. Um, the, the day of preparation was yesterday. That and again, that's emphasized over and over and over again. Today, the Sabbath has begun, and these law-abiding, quote-unquote, Pharisees and chief priests are now taking the time on the Sabbath to go and to try to, you know, make sure nothing else comes out of this. So I, I don't think we can, the first thing I want to emphasize is their, just their general hypocrisy here. You know, this is kind of like in the Gospel of John when, we, when you hear that they didn't go into the praetorium so that they could actually eat the, the Passover. You know, that, that just absolute hypocritical we are keeping the law because we haven't stepped foot into the praetorium even though we are illegally putting a man to death i mean it's just i don't know i it's <laughs> you know what i mean i mean it's just it's difficult to read because they the the lengths they are going to to try to silence the voice of the gospel here is just absolutely mind-boggling it it really is and and the hypocrisy is is just Especially, and I don't know when, I think it was was one of the times when I was reading one of those sections earlier in Matthew's gospel, where Jesus has a conflict with the Pharisees for precisely this reason. They think he's working on the Sabbath. Matthew chapter 12, right? They're they're going through the grain fields. The disciples are plucking heads of grain and and the Pharisees come and criticize. And and then later, Jesus heals a man on, 
on the Sabbath in the synagogue, they're ready to, to accuse him for these things. Over and over, this has been one of the primary conflicts. They think Jesus is working on the Sabbath. They think they're resting. And yet here, it's just the great irony. And, and like you said, it points out their hypocrisy. What, what are the Pharisees and the, the scribes, what are they doing on the Sabbath? They're working. And yeah. what is Jesus <laughs> doing on the Sabbath? He's resting. I mean, it's just, it's a total turn, a great irony and a great hypocrisy on, on the part of the Pharisees that we shouldn't miss. It's it, it's really, um, on the one hand, it's it's beautiful. And it's also, like you said, you just, how, how do they not get it sort of thing? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, it, and with all of this too, I mean, if you look at the chief priests and the Pharisees together, um, we know from other parts of the Bible that many of the chief priests were in fact Sadducees. Like in Acts chapter 5, we're told that they're mostly of, of that party. They weren't all of that party, but they were mostly of that party. And then the Pharisees have also come with them, but we know from Acts chapter 23 that the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't get along. But here they are working together against Jesus, breaking you know, their own law, or at least their own understanding of the law, to go and to try to put, you know, make sure that Jesus doesn't cause any further problems. So, I mean, it's just over and over again, we have this, uh, it's just this, this rank hypocrisy that they are showing in their attempt to silence the gospel. And so... Well, and even, just real ahead. quick, the, the fact that, like you said, there probably were Sadducees present at this meeting, the, one of the defining characteristics of the Sadducees is that they don't believe in the resurrection period. Right. And, and so for them to to have this thought, you know, that they're going to go to Pilate and, and try to talk to him about, well, don't let the resurrection. It's just, again, the irony, the hypocrisy that's there is is so <laughs> evident. <laughs> no, that's that's an excellent point. Yeah. And, and then with this, too, you know, they come and they say to him, you know, this is verse 63. They say to Pilate, sir. Now. I think this is not the, the I mean, it's, it's, it's a fine way to translate this, but I think it kind of misses the point. They don't call Pilate Sir in Greek. They call Pilate Kyrie. They call him Lord. Okay. And I think this is also a reference to where John says in uh, chapter 19, verse 15, we have no king but Caesar. They're showing the truth of their hearts in all of this. They're coming to Caesar, they're coming to Rome as a way of saying, you know, you are our king, you are our Lord, you are Kyrie, and will you take care of this problem for us? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, again, this whole passage right here, and we'll see this also in chapter 28, where they pay off the guards to not say anything. They're really showing the, the truth of their hearts. They have become completely hardened against the gospel and are going completely contrary to everything that they profess to believe so that they might, you know, put an end to everything that Jesus has done. And I think, that, I, go ahead. Keep going, sorry. No, I, that's fine, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say what you said there about in, in verse 63 that is translated sir, which is, it, you know, that's a fair translation of the Greek right. word kyrie. Not every time the, when that word shows up is it meant as as Lord, but I think I think you're right to catch the irony here. Because throughout Matthew's gospel, these these folks, the the chief priests, the Pharisees, they've not called Jesus Lord. They've called him rabbi. They've called him teacher, but they've never called him Lord. It was the disciples of Jesus who called Jesus Lord. And so now to hear that word on their lips used toward Pontius Pilate, again, the, the irony, the hypocrisy there is is just it just drips with it. So so keep keep going, Pastor Heidi. Well, then, and then to kind of put a cherry on top of all of this, the, whole, the reason that they're concerned with this, the reason they're giving to be concerned with this is they don't want the people to be deceived. They're so concerned with the truth, quote unquote, that they don't want Jesus's disciples to cause a further kind of disruption. They don't want to cause a further deception. Um, and I know that it says we have in verse 63, you have him being called an imposter. You also have in verse um, 64, you know, this idea of fraud. Well, the words are related. They mean basically a deception. It's, it's the, the word in Greek is where we get the word uh, planet from. It means one who wanders, one who is not stable, one who is not constant, one who is kind of wandering all over the place. In other words, a deceiver. 
So they are setting themselves up as these beacons of truth, these beacons of orthodoxy, these, you know, these beacons of stability, even though that's not anything of what's going on here. Everything that they're doing here shows just how much they are, you know, opposed to the truth because the truth has been buried and was going to rise again. But, you know, because Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. But they, you know, out of this pretext of being, you know, concerned with the, the, what the people are going to learn from this, you know, come and they make this, this outrageous claim. So I, I mean, I know it sounds like I'm being kind of hard on the Pharisees and the, the, the chief priests here, but I am. I mean, I don't really know how else to look at it. So, <laughs> sure, and 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 we've we've talked about this before that when we when we point out the the flaws, the sins, the hypocrisy of the the Pharisees, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, all these groups that have been opposed to Jesus throughout the gospel. We do so not setting ourselves above them, but setting our, but saying to ourselves there, but for the grace of God, that's where I would be. That sure. I mean, and Jesus warns his disciples about this over and over. Watch out for the leaven. Watch out for the hypocrisy of these, not just so that you don't listen to it, but so that you don't fall in fall into it yourselves so that you don't start teaching these these things doing these things being hypocrites in this way so so right i mean we're we're hard on them but not for the point of somehow thinking we're quote better than them or that we sure. wouldn't have been there with them but rather so that we would avoid that type of hypocrisy right right no i i get you well and and you i know you've talked a little bit about how the the pharisees and the Jews in general have testified kind of unwittingly to the truth as well. I, I think that is something that we are seeing a little tiny bit here too. We're going to see it more in Matthew chapter 28, but at least here you see them confirming the truth of what's in front of them, even if they don't want to believe a word of it. Christ is in fact dead. It's not fake. They know he's in the tomb just as he's supposed to be there. And they know what he has said. In fact, he said it so clearly that he's going to rise on the third day that his enemies are worried about it. And so they have to deal with the reality of a missing body one way or another. They can't, you know, just produce the, the body of Jesus and say, here, he's still dead. You know, and again, this is looking forward a little bit, but at the same, you know, but they have to kind of explain it away. The fact that the body is gone. And so they come up with this explanation, oh, the, the disciples stole it. Well, Matthew has kind of cut that off at, at the, even before it starts by saying, no, it wasn't stolen. Everyone saw where it was. And this happened exactly because God said that it would happen. So mm -hmm. over and over again, you have this confirmation, again, kind of unwittingly on the part of the, the, the Jews, that everything that is happening is in fact real. Go ahead. And well, and, and to point out, too, that they knew what he had said. That, that's a really important point, I think, especially as we think about them as, as actors throughout the gospel. Right. Maybe they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. No, actually, they understood him quite well. They knew exactly what he was saying, and they did not believe it. And, and here's, here's the prime example of it. They knew that Jesus had said he was going to rise on the third day. They didn't believe it, but they knew exactly. And, and there's perhaps a, a bit of irony in, in the fact that what are the what are the chief priests and the Pharisees think they or they they say that it might be the disciples who come and steal the body to to make it look like his words are true, and and in fact where are the disciples at this very moment? Well, they're they have no thoughts of of going and stealing the body. They're they're right. locked in a room. So yeah yeah to see right, who's who's preaching the word at this time unwittingly it is the the opponents of Jesus while those disciples they're they're locked away for fear it's it's just such a striking scene yeah it really is which is why it's it's such a shame that sometimes we just kind of gloss over it because there's so much going on here that is important for the passion narrative that we shouldn't overlook it in in one in any in any way shape or form so Pilot Pilot continues as as a character here, and I, I don't like to use the word character because it it, it I don't I don't want to imply that this is fake, okay? But right, but I don't know what else to use. So so Pilot appears again here as as one of the main actors in this part of the account. How how do you how would you characterize him at this point? Totally over it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's especially because of the the other the other gospels and the way he's kind of 
presenting himself. I think he just doesn't want anything to do with it anymore. And so he's just saying, I think at this point, he's just saying, fine, whatever. Here's your guard. Go take care of it. I just want to be done with this. So I, Pilot is kind of, I don't know if you want to characterize him as a cynic or characterize him as someone who's generally troubled. I think at this point, he just wants to not have to worry about this problem anymore. So... Yeah, he 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 again appears he appears very aloof. I mean, and, and you think about well, just think about Pilot as as he's appeared in the narrative already. He he appeared in the trial of Jesus as one who knew the the religious leaders were trying to pull something on him, and he didn't want to to sentence Jesus to death, but he had his hand forced. It seems and mm-hmm. not to relieve him of responsibility, of course. But just to to watch his again, and not not that this is fake, but his character, you know, develop. He he pretty much continues along that same path. That mm-hmm. that he he didn't want to do anything. He had his hand forced. He did it, and now here they come again. It you know it's almost like the he's he's just annoyed. Like just go do do whatever whatever you think is is right. And, <laughs> and so he, and and I think and I don't know, Pastor Hyde, if you if you looked at this. There's a there's a note in the ESV text there on, on verse 65 where it says you have a guard. It says you could also say take a guard. In other mm-hmm. words, so I mean, do you have any any thought? Is this pilot telling them go put some of your soldiers there, or is this pilot saying fine? Here's a couple of mine to put there. What do, what do you think? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I think I I don't think there's anything wrong with saying these were Roman soldiers. I can't imagine there were very many of them though. I mean. Can you imagine getting that that charge of of having to go down and guard a a tomb? I mean, it's just I, I I think in this case he's just saying, okay, here, fine, here's a few of them, just just go away. I really think that's what he's doing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think it it makes good sense to to understand. And again, that's that's a, a matter of translation whether that verb is translated take a guard or you have a guard, and and mm-hmm. either could fit the grammar. But but probably context-wise, it does make sense to, to see it as you take your own soldiers, go do what you want, make it as secure as you can. So again, take us, what are, what are the mechanics of this? What do, they, what do they actually do to make the tomb secure? Well, they would have been positioned around it, you know, just kind of standing around, making sure no one is trying to come in, basically break into the tomb. It also, we are told that they uh, seal the stone. This is probably similar to Daniel chapter 6 where the king sets a, an actual seal over the stone of the, the, the lion's pit after Daniel has been thrown in. So in other words, a kind of a, an actual physical thing that they'd have to break as a proof of that something has been tampered with. Um, I mean, it's, it's the same way with, you know, like opening letters or something like that in our own day. You know, just something to show that, the, that a break-in has occurred. So they would have set some, and I don't know what exactly that would have looked like, um, but they did something to do that to make sure that it had a seal. And then they just kind of stood around and watched a tomb for the next however many hours until the angel, of course, comes and rolls the stone away. And then they fall like dead men. So, mm. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a that's a wonderful moment that we'll get to see on, on Monday, too. I, I think there's maybe a bit of. I don't know if mockery is the right word, perhaps from both from from Pilate, but ultimately from Matthew as evangelist that, you know, go go and make it as secure as you know how to. Well, this is an example of the might of man is not going to be able to do anything to stop the son of God from coming out of the tomb. I think there's a, a bit of mockery going on here as well, don't you? Oh, I, absolutely there is, because as you point out, you know, you could translate it as go make it secure as you know how, as you know, as you're as far as you know, as being able to do. And so, yeah, the 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 hatred of the Pharisees, the hypocrisy of the Jews has led up to this point where they think they are going to stop what is about to come. Stop it with their puny little seal and some uh, soldiers standing around the tomb. But they can't stop God. You know, at least Gamaliel in Acts understood that if this is of God, you're not going to be able to do anything about it. But at at this point, they're trying to do everything that they can to stop him. They're trying to keep him in that tomb, but it it won't work. God will still come forth because God will not be stopped. 
what what wonderful words of hope on on Good Friday, as 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 tonight, many of us will will hear again that account of our Lord's crucifixion, his death, and his burial, to to recognize this hope that that is there even on Good Friday, that the third day is coming, that Jesus will prove his words true, that he will rise from the dead. Pastor Heidi, we've got just under three minutes here left on the morning. Any any points from the text that you'd like to bring out that we missed, or or help us to summarize and wrap things up today? I think maybe just as a way of summarizing all of this, you know, again, we've talked about how we shouldn't overlook the burial of Christ as we're so apt to do because, you know, we preach the cross a lot and that's good. We preach the resurrection quite a bit and that's also good because, you know, if Christ has not died on the cross and if Christ has not been raised, then we are still in our sins. But when we look at the burial of Christ, we shouldn't overlook this. Because we see in this moment the power of God, even in his moment of greatest weakness. You know, he is literally dead in the tomb. But God will not be stopped regardless of how much man tries to stop him. Regardless of how much the gospel, you know, they try to silence the gospel. Regardless of how much they try to put him back into the grave and keep him there. Jesus is, in fact, risen from the dead. And he will come forth from this tomb to give us new life. So I think we should preach the burial of Christ just as much as we preach anything else, because we see in it here the hope of our salvation. Pastor Zelwyn Heidi is the pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He's also the host of a podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken. He helps us with this morning with Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 through 66. Pastor Heidi, before you go real quick, if, if, yeah. we, if we want to listen to A Word Fitly Spoken, where do we go to listen to that? The easiest way to go is to wordfitlyspoken.org. Um, our website is there, and you, you'll be able to find the, the podcast when it comes out. We also publish our podcast on Podbean if you want to find it there. Very good. Another another solid theological resource that will help strengthen your faith, sharpen your faith in Christ. Pastor Heidi, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Jesus died and he was buried. He was given the burial of a rich man in fulfillment of the scriptures. As Matthew has been showing us all along, Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures and he does so in his burial reminding us of the great importance of what Jesus has done. Where is true wealth? Where are true riches? It is to be found in Christ's death and on the third day, which is coming, dear friends. It is coming on the third day, the resurrection, and it's all for you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. A blessed Good Friday, a blessed Easter to you. I look forward to talking to you again on Monday.